this morning. It's a thrill, a joy, a pleasure, a responsibility. I don't know how many adjectives to add to what it is to be able to gather around the Word of God, to study, to read, to contemplate, to share. And of all the things in this world that we can do, I think there's nothing greater than gathering around the Word of God. Not just a book, but the very person of God Himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is actively revealed in the pages of this book and actively leads us by the instruction of this book. And so it is always my greatest delight to be able to share in any way the contents, the meaning, the purpose, in any way, what this book is all about. I do want to say as we begin our study this morning of Hebrews that we'll probably be doing it a little differently than what we have done in the past. Typically what we would have done in the past is to take the 13 chapters of Hebrews and every Sunday morning tell you what we believe we see and understand in these chapters, what we believe the uh, a writer is saying what we believe the emphasis is, what the purpose is, et cetera, et cetera. And there's going to be that in this study. But the study isn't going to concentrate on <clears throat> the teacher telling you because we have just been through a study of how to approach, study, handle, read, <clears throat> and understand the Word of God. And we want to begin to apply some of those principles that hopefully we began to hear about. And I didn't say learn because we will learn them as we put them to practice. We heard about them. And so during this particular course, the challenge to me will be, it's one thing to take a class of 15 to 20 students, 30 students as I used to as a classroom teacher, develop a, a daily teaching, weekly teaching have uh, questions and answers, discussions, tests, et cetera, et cetera. And it's easy to develop the kinds of tools that you need to have in order to properly understand, study, receive from uh, the Word of God. But in a class this large, it's a little more challenging. So what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, is hit a middle ground here. And if you give me a little latitude in fumbling around on this, which is I'm going to do anyway, uh, I will appreciate that because I'm not quite taught it this way. I've, as I said, typically, here's what the Word says, here's what it means. You know, it's been kind of a, that kind of a uh, situation. <clears throat> so I want this morning to begin in a little different way than we typically would have begun and proceed in a little different way. Father, thank you so much. Father, that you have placed within us the very jewel of heaven, the very treasure of eternity, even the very life of your Son. Father, that we can handle the word of life. As the Apostle John says, we've handled him. And Father, although we do not touch physically the Lord Jesus, we touch you and are touched by you when we encounter this word. And so, Father, as we study not only Hebrews, but begin this morning in First Peter in the sanctuary and other studies, Father, would you remind us you're touching us. And you are allowing us to reciprocate, to touch you. Father, what an awesome privilege. What heights of joy and of amazement and of wonder. Father, as we begin this study, we just ask that the Holy Spirit be all over us, be all over the class, as you are always all over your word. 
Father, that we would come through this study not only knowing something more about this sermon to the Hebrews, but having been given and used and gathering up greater ability to approach the study of your word, whether Old or New Testament. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your self-revelation in Christ. We ask, according to your will, that you will make it greater and greater in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, as our emphasis in this study is going to be the forest rather than the leaves. Now, Gene said I should say the trees for the forest. And we talked about that. You know, you can't see the, what is it, the forest for the trees? Is that the way it is? But I really wanted to get a little more particular, a little further down, so we'll just say the leaves for the forest, although the reason I put it in there, I thought it was trees, I mean leaves rather than forests. We knew that people would laugh at me, but that's all right. But then as I began to think about it, no, we want to be able to see the leaves that are in Hebrews, that are in the Word, amen? We want to see the very specific issues that the Word of God is bringing out. But in order to do that, what we probably need to do, especially when we study a work like Hebrews, we need to see the larger picture. I know for me, when I go in town, and especially out of town, but even in town, Lindsay has to make for me one of these Google Maps that kind of give the general area. You know, you've seen those. And then she produces for me a specific 200 feet here, turn there, turn there, stop here, look to the right, and that's where you're going. Now, those of you who know me know I need that because my sense of direction is terrible. Jean and I will leave a place that we've been to a hundred times, and I'll turn left instead of right. And she said, it's right, left, right, rather. And I said, I know, but I'm just taking a long way around. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. And so when I look at the entire map, which I do first, then it allows me to see the relationships of the streets and the flow of traffic in a way that's a lot better for me. So as I go down the particular street, I get a better sense of where I am and where I'm going, and how to get there. I just feel better, and I have a better understanding. So that's, I think, what we want to do this morning as we begin this study of Hebrews. We want to fly over it. We want to see the forest. We want to see the landscape, the whole map. So as we get into the particulars of Hebrews over the next several weeks, we can relate the particulars to the overview because one of the difficulties in studying Hebrews, especially the five warnings, and if you don't know what those are, sit tight, you'll understand them, the five warnings. The five warnings typically are studied individually, and one in particular, and we'll look at this later on, chapter 6, is kind of extracted from Hebrews and studied and looked at as if it does not pertain to the others and does not follow the same flow. And we don't want to be exegeting the Word or looking at the Word and understanding the Word in a way that causes the Word that is originally written to be misapplied and misunderstood, especially in our own lives. So we want to be able to have a better continuity and understanding and relationship as we study this Word. So we're going to ask you as students, how many of you want to study the Word of God? How many of you want to be students? Okay. You signed up for the class. Remember, you signed up for Hebrews 104. <laughs> Hebrews 101 is being taught down the hall. So, therefore, we're going to ask you to read the text before coming to class. So, for instance, next week we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and go through chapter 2, verse 4. We're going to ask you, would you do that homework? Well, I'm already reading something. What about? Well, it may be for the next several weeks you should set aside your normal Bible reading and just concentrate on Hebrews. It'd be okay. I think the Holy Spirit would be all right with that. Whatever it is, do the homework. And let's do the homework. So we're going to ask you to read before coming to class, and we're going to ask you to actually do some homework so that the class presentation and activity will be more meaningful and productive. So you'll understand what's going on. 
And by the way, thank you so much for coming in here almost on time. Really, no, no, by this time, 30, 40% of the class will be coming in, and everybody basically is here. We appreciate that. It is so important not to miss 10 to 15 minutes every week of the class because they added up, and you've missed an enormous amount of information and material. So thank you for being here this morning on time. So let's look at the overview. Arthur's main theme is revealed, so let's open our Bibles. Everybody have a Bible, hopefully. The main theme is in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, I have brought this big hulk of a Bible in here today just to show you that the ESV Study Bible, which some of you may have purchased, is one of our recommended sources of study and of illumination and understanding. So if we turn to Hebrews, here it is, chapter 2. And we're just beginning to look at the, what we call a letter. We don't know anything about it. We've never read it before. It's the first time we've ever seen this, first time we've ever heard this. So let me read the first two verses for you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, let me stop for a moment. The coordinate conjunction, but, is an adversative. It reverses the understanding or the direction. So when you see that, especially so early on, it should say something to you. This was, but, that, is. Something. And so it should immediately indicate to you something significant is being stated here. You see, you should have listened to your English teachers a little better in those days. Long ago, he's talking about past, present, or future. Okay. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to us, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, when is that? Past, present, or future? In these last days, that past, present, or future? Present. Okay, so you have a dichotomy, a time differentiation, differentiation already immediately put before you. Now, again, when we read the Word of God, let's read it intelligently rather than in the past, son of our fathers, and I spoke to his by son, and, 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 and hey, read it carefully, read it slowly, and may I recommend to you if you have the ability, not because you can speak, I'm talking about if you have the place ability, read it aloud. It is highly different when you read the word aloud because you're speaking it and you're listening to it at the same time. And you'll be surprised how much different it is, it sounds, and what you will get out of it if you read it aloud rather than just always reading it silently. Read it aloud to yourself. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So, right in the beginning, the author is saying something and setting the stage for the rest of the sermon. Immediately in the beginning, we sense something. What is the author's purpose in Hebrews? <clears throat> what does it look like the author is going to be talking about in Hebrews? Past as compared to present. He's going to do something about something of the past as opposed to or in comparison to or in relationship with the present. God, long time ago, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But today, he has spoken to us in son. Huh. Wonder why he would do that. He immediately sets up the whole context, the whole theme, at least this particular Arthur does. And so as we study Hebrews, 
if you study any book of the Bible, especially the letters, you know, the epistles, look for indications very quickly on of what the author's purpose is. Now, can I go to a reference to get that? Yes. We have suggested several references which you can use and which actually you should use in dealing with and studying the Word of God. But I would rather see you do this. I would rather see you first read the text. Wrestle with the text a little bit. What's God saying? What's going on? To whom is it written? You know, let me get, where is he going? What's his purpose? What is he trying to prove? What is he talking about? What is he defending against? What is he proposing? All of those kinds of questions. It would be better for you and me to first read the text and answer some of these basic questions. Who's the audience? And then go to the reference material and see if your understanding agrees with theirs. Because let's face it, some kind of way we think that the writers of the reference material had revelation beyond what we have. Well, they, they don't have revelation beyond what we have. What they did, they took the word, the same word that we have, and they delved into it. And, of course, they have some understanding of background and history. But basically what they're going to tell you in the reference material is what is already in the text. So let's learn to depend upon reference material but not too heavily. Let's depend upon the Word of God to tell us by the Holy Spirit what is going on. And let us use then the reference material to tweak or correct or adjust anything that we may have misunderstood. So what is the author's purpose? What do you think the author's doing immediately? Then and now. Okay. Why is this his purpose? You see, to whom is he writing? What circumstances have precipitated this writing? These are the kinds of questions that we should be asking ourselves as we proceed through this or any of the other writings of the uh, New Testament, especially, and even especially in the Old Testament. The answer to these questions and more can be found in various references, as I said, especially in the introductory material to your study Bible. So <clears throat> if you have the ESV study Bible, it gives you a decent amount of information concerning the background to Hebrews. I mean, it's a whole several, several pages of this. Every time I read one of the books of the Bible, every time I read one of the books of the Bible, every time I read one of the books of the Bible, I reread all the introductory material. I reread it. Well, how many times are you going to read it? Well, I have to continue to reread it because I don't remember everything. I want to be refreshed. I want to see the map before I start traveling down the road. So every time I reread the material first. Now, this is, again, I have read the material, so I'm not talking about depending on something, but it would be wise, I think, if we, when we read the Bible, just to go ahead and read that kind of general information. Every time. Take your pen, take the material, read your Bible, Underline here, write thoughts out there, whatever. And when you begin to travel down the road, you're going to understand and see the scenery a little better. So let's talk a little bit about some of the context of Hebrews, the audience. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm not going to go into great detail at all. That would be for a different kind of study. But I said, what we want to do is to give us a general overview and some tools and some content to be able to take us in our personal study of this or any writing of the Bible to take us on our way with the Holy Spirit as the one who is the revealer of the truth of God to study the Word on our own or among two or three of us if that's the way you would like to do it. Who's the audience? <clears throat> the audience are Jews. They are Hebrews. There are Christian Jews. <clears throat> I think that's significant. There is somewhat of a debate whether these people are not believers. 
I would stand, and at least mine personally, and I think the rest of us on staff, would be that the audience here, the people who are hearing this word, are believers in Jesus Christ. They are Jewish. They are Jewish. Does it mean that there are no uh, Gentile believers? No. But it means that the preponderance of the congregation, let's say 75%, are of Jewish origin. Very important to know that. Now, you might think, why do you think they were Jewish? That's a question I want you to answer. Why do we believe that these people were Jewish? Why can't they just have been Gentiles? Anybody have an answer that you've already read some of the text or have read the letter or the sermon? Do you know why we would say they're Jewish? Anybody have an idea? So many of his references are Jewish culture and practices, and he quotes so much from the Old Testament. This is the most quoted Old Testament work in the entire New Testament. It is strewn with Old Testament evidence. Now, you don't do that when you're talking to Gentiles who don't know what the Old Testament is. Huh? Who Moses? Who? I don't know him. I knew Aphrodite and Apollo, but Moses, I have no idea who that. So why quote Moses? It's Jewish background. The date. We believe that the work is produced before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Why this date? And what is the significance of worrying about who cares when it was written? All we want to know is what it says. It is extremely important and significant when it was written, to whom it was written, and why it was written at that time rather than other times. We believe it was written before the destruction of the temple. And, and I think there's several evidences in there. One evidence is when he talks about the sacrificial system, he begins to talk in the present tense, not always in the past. And he emphasizes a system that seems very evidential to be going on at the time of the presentation. He makes no reference to where the temple was destroyed and, you know, when you all used to do sacrifices and when you used to shed the blood and all that. He doesn't do any of that. He talks about it as if it is still going on. So we believe it is written before 70 A.D. Who is the author? Well, we don't know. Would you make sure you have that as what you have as far as the author is concerned? We don't know. Well, who is the author? You don't know. I, I know that, but who's the author? I don't know. <clears throat> Speculation, I think, is not important here. Could it have been the Apostle Paul? Probably, but probably not. Could it have been Barnabas? Probably. Could it have been Luke? Probably. Could it have been Apollos? Probably. At least one thing we know. In chapter 2, we'll get to that later, the author talks about being a second-generation believer. So that knocks out several of the people I just named. Now, you didn't know that maybe because you didn't know that verse was there. I knew that because I'm thinking ahead of myself. So we throw out these names and we consider these things, but then we have to look at the text and see what it says. Why no author? My own personal opinion is that there is a reason from God, obviously, to do this, and I won't share that with you until we get to chapter 7. So if you want to know what my personal understanding, my personal reason is or thought is, when we get to chapter 7, ask me then, and I'll share that with you. And if Evan is doing that chapter and I haven't shared it with him, ask him. <laughs> He'll know anyway. He'll know it anyway. What's the occasion? What's the problem? What does it look like the problem is looking at verses 1 and 2? Now, we're talking about Jewish believers. The Jews before Christ depended upon what? The Old Testament sacrificial law system for their identity and inclusion in Israel, correct? 
Do you remember that? If you're not understanding or sure what that system is, I think Evan put some information or material in the back here that you can refer to that will give you some better insight into some of the particulars. I don't have it in my notes. Maybe you do in yours. Okay. And it would be extremely important for you if you don't have a decent grasp. I don't mean a detailed understanding of Leviticus, but a decent grasp of what the law, the Sinaitic, the, the Sinaitic, Sinai covenant was all about. What was its purpose? What was its function? It had function and purpose, but its function and purpose was not totally effective in the present because it pointed to something and it referenced something that was coming. It was effective for what it did then, but it wasn't effective after a certain activity. And so you just have to understand what that is a little better because if we're not understanding that, what we're going to begin to say and think is this. When we became Christians, the law was done away with. Uh-uh. No, that's not correct. The law has never been done away with. It cannot be done away with because it's a statement of the very character and nature of God. What is God going to do? Deny himself? So there is a particular relationship that we need to understand as believers of the new covenant, how we are relating to that which was of the old and the old, how it relates to us. So you need to at least have some understanding of the old covenant, the law, the sacrificial system, etc., in order to better appreciate and grasp what Hebrews is saying to us. Now, we weren't raised in this. But the people to whom the sermon is given were raised and steeped in this. How many Catholics or previous Catholics are in here? Okay. Now, for those of you who are not Catholic, how many of you are not Catholic? If I say to you, unless you've already heard me say this or whatever, and we're meeting on Saturday and we have a meeting, and I say this doesn't count for tomorrow. Now, how many of you non-Catholics, that means something? Well, just because probably I beat it into you. How many of you Catholics, that means something? Now, look, what is so strange? These people are weird because they were steeped in a system which said if they went to a service and enough of the particular activity in the homily were present during that service, a wedding or funeral, whatever it is, on a Saturday or a Friday, whatever, that Sunday they were exempt because they already went to church. And they already did the means of grace. Oh, oh, man. Well, that means a lot more now that I know that. Right? It means a lot more. So when I say to folks in the meeting with me, remember, this doesn't count for church tomorrow or Sunday. I had the other day, somebody look at me and say, what? And I realized, you weren't Catholic, were you? No, how did you know? <laughs> but the Catholics, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's important to understand how the Jews felt and what this author is saying about their religion. You get the context, don't you? You get that. That's pretty good. So the next time we meet, this doesn't count for anything except that meeting. So don't come into the office thinking you're going to get something off on Sunday, but you wouldn't want it anyway, right? We don't want it anyway. So what's the temptation? What do you think the temptation is? He's writing a polemic. Uh, a polemic is a, 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 an attack against something. It's an argument. He's writing a polemic. He's writing a defense. What do you think it's about? What are they being tempted to do? Remember the time frame of verses 1 and 2. Then and now. Jews had the old covenant, and now they're in the new covenant. Remember, let's think about it. So the author immediately says, the old covenant was then, but the new covenant now. Why would he have said that? What do you believe is happening here? There is something going on to cause them, Brian, what? To go backward. 
There's something happening. Because if that weren't the temptation, why worry about such a contrast between the two? Let's talk about something else. You see, because we're, we may reference other background faiths in here from time to time, but we don't make a major presentation of why not Catholicism. Now, this morning in the sermon, Keith is going to emphasize something about the author of 1 Peter, which we believe we need to emphasize because of the city we live in. But if we came from a Baptist city, he wouldn't be emphasizing this because from time to time there are certain issues that we believe we need to emphasize. But we're not going to make the whole issue that. Why? Because you are not being tempted, hopefully, to go back to something that we believe doesn't present the gospel in a way that the Bible does. Are you with me on this? But they were. What was the solution? What's the solution? Right in verse 2. But God has spoken to us in these last days in Son. By His Son. The Greek is en in the word for Son. We saw. We also. In Son. Literally, I speak in English. Literally, God's literal language to us is Jesus. Jesus is God's language to us, so I just say in son like the Greek does. But, of course, the translation does a little differently. It helps us understand it flow a little better. Well, okay. What's the solution to the problem? Jesus. So where is the comparison going to fall? Think. Think about it. Before you start reading it, what does it look like? The old covenant, the new covenant. If the old covenant is a, no longer something I should return to, what is the only solution? Jesus. Jesus is the solution. If I'm looking back, wanting to go back, not looking back to evaluate and appreciate God, you see, we appreciate God. But if I'm looking back, being drawn back, where is my gaze? backward rather than where should my gaze be on whom his son do you see how much you can gather up in the first two verses because it's setting forth the whole context of the presentation i'm going to give you an outline and there there's several ways of outlining a letter or a book so if you get an outline in here or someone else gives you one there, don't freak out because a verse is different or this is done that or the emphasis, whatever. There are several, I think, good judicious outlines depending upon what you believe the emphasis is. And usually there are multiple emphases. And so your emphasis in one outline may be somewhat different than an emphasis in another outline. Are you following me on this? There is no absolute correct outline unless we bring the author in here himself to tell us what was his outline and even with that we can make some changes to it without damaging the content of the information one of the books that i've had in my library for years it was given to me in 1980s by a couple who used to go here is jansen's survey of the new testament it's just an excellent survey book of all the books of the New Testament, outlining them, giving you the audience and the dates and the, uh, the purpose and who wrote it and why he wrote it, and kind of, you know, outline the whole thing. It, it, it's a, what do you call it? an atlas to the books of the New Testament, an atlas to the books of the New Testament. So I have several of these because I taught a course at School of the Urban Mission several years ago of the, uh, what was it called, the uh, survey of the New Testament. So we outlined every book of the New Testament we, uh, uh, well, whatever, it doesn't matter what we did. And this is one of the references that we used. I, I tell you why I, I tell you I have that because I think it's, again, good for you to have certain kinds of basic materials. An outline of the New Testament, in my mind, would be excellent to have. But your study Bible will have about the same thing, but not in the kind of detail. So it depends on what you want, depends on what your purpose is, depends on how deeply you want to go into an understanding of the Word. Okay? So let's talk about the outline. Hebrews is a polemic. It's a, an attack, an argument against 
the temptation to desert the faith, to fall from grace, to deny Christ. Now, let me say this right up front. I hate to ask this, but I'm going to. Would it be okay with you if I took 10 minutes over today? Would that be all right? I, I'm, I'm not joking. I don't want to go over, but I, I would like to have that permission. Bill, would you give me that permission? Bill Treby? Go 10 minutes over? I'm asking Bill, who went 10 minutes till. <laughs> Bill and I have a uh, continuing relationship that uh, uh, we like one another, so we take liberty with one another. Two old bats fighting one another. Here's the issue in Hebrews, and it is highly significant to distinguish, to differentiate, and make clear the issue. If you do not, you will fall into great confusion and, I believe, condemnation or danger. The issue in Hebrews is in temptation of these Jewish believers under these weird Caesars when they were taking believers and cutting them up and slitting them up and burning them up and pulling them apart of whatever they were doing. And they were killing the believers left and right. But the Jewish people of the Roman Empire at that time were basically being okay. They were being accepted, you know. You Jewish or Christian? I'm Jewish. Hey, okay. You Jewish or Christian? Christian? And so many to escape this, and we understand. Who wants your eyeballs gouged out? Many to escape this. I don't need this anymore. I don't need this problem. Anybody ever think that way in your own life? I don't need this problem. I'm going back to Judaism and hiding under the umbrella of Judaism. I'm going to deny the faith. I believe that I'm in Christ and I'm secure forever and I'm still going to go to heaven. I'm going to go just deny the faith and trust God. You see, I'm going to trust that my salvation experience will take me all the way through and it really doesn't matter very much what I do, so I'm going to go back. Right, Gerald? We're going back. We're going to become Jews again because we're going to be let off the hook of the personal persecution. The temptation is to deny the significance, the centrality, the effect, the power of the atoning death of Jesus Christ for our sin. Denying him as our one and only Lord who saves. That's the temptation. The temptation isn't if you're going to commit adultery, man, those warnings are going to get you. That's not the issue. The issue is not individual sinning. Now, don't misunderstand. Individual sinning may lead somewhere. But individual sinning of stealing and adultery and, you know, being jealous and lying and whatever else, that's not the issue in Hebrews. You must make sure you get this because if you don't, then when it comes to the warnings, you're going to have great difficulty, especially when you get to chapter 6. And so, what is the temptation? The temptation is apostasy. What is that? Apostasy is denying the faith in Jesus Christ. It is falling away, being severed from Christ, as Paul talks about in Galatians. It is saying no to him who has saved me by his blood. It is a denial of the very foundation of our faith. Does everybody understand? I've taken a moment to explain that clearly. Because when we get into other aspects of the Hebrews, it looks like, and we can think to use these warnings against believers who are not living in a way that they should. There are other warnings and other ways and other methods and other applications, just not in Hebrews the way we think they typically used, okay? Doesn't mean the Bible accepts sin, but not in Hebrews in the same way, in the same magnitude. The author presents a series of arguments of 
passages of proofs, each advancing his theses to a conclusion. What is the thesis? Don't go back because Christ is the answer. The outline is a method to better see and understand the author's process as he builds his argument section by section, scriptural section by scriptural section, that Christ is both sufficient in himself and superior to the old covenant. Being the person to whom the covenant pointed and the person in whom the covenant was fully fulfilled. The argument is this. Jesus Christ is sufficient and superior. And if you go back to that other system, if you go back to that other church from which you were saved, where Christ was not presented biblically, you're going back to that which denies the person and the work of Christ. And he says, if you go back and you reject Christ, then you go back to a system which no longer has any validation as far as our salvation is concerned because Jesus has done it all at the cross and there is no going back because there ain't nothing to go back to except destruction. Okay? That's his argument. And he's going to produce these arguments, these passages, to show one thing. Everything in Hebrews to show one thing. Everything in Hebrews to demonstrate one truth in his person and in his work, primarily the work of the cross. Jesus Christ is superior and is sufficient. Ain't no one like him. No one near him, no one can touch him, no other way. There is no truth apart from him. We are a narrow-minded people, narrowly looking to the narrow way, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. Amen? That's who we are. There is no other path. And you'll notice, and I didn't put this in the notes, I want you to notice the centrality of the cross of Christ. And when I say the centrality of the cross of Christ, I'm going to leave it to you to, in your own study, to begin to identify the references to the cross. And let me give you at least a little bit of a warning here. The references to the cross are not always using the word cross so well I only said the word cross three times in here it can't be much from the very beginning strewn throughout the entire letter just like Galatians in every chapter of Galatians there is reference to the cross of Christ and warnings and we have that here so look for those references, the cross of Christ. And you won't see them just in the word C-R-O-S-S. You're going to see them in many other ways. And I'm not going to say what they are. I think many of you will already know that. Perhaps all of you will, but at least begin to look for that. Why? Because when we say we are a cross-centered people, there is reason for it. Because the New Testament is utterly and completely cross-centered. And when we say cross-centered, and when the Bible says cross-centered, it does not only mean exclusively the death of Jesus. That is the pinnacle. But it means a much larger sweep from the incarnation all the way to the exaltation. That's the cross of Christ. Okay? But specifically when dealing with issues of sin and apostasy, it is the specific cross of Christ himself that is brought into most specific view, the death of Jesus Christ. So there are going to be several outlines. The first one, two major divisions. 
doctrine and practice, chapter 1, 1 to 10, 18, is doctrinal. Here's what happened. Here's what it means. Here's what's going on. Here's why they did that. This is what God was doing there. And it's all about God. It's all about doctrine. It's all about those kinds of issues. Then in chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to 13, 25, which is at the end of the presentation, then you have practice. You begin to see a turn where that which has been presented doctrinally is going now to be applied practically. Because the purpose of doctrine is not doctrine in and of itself. The purpose of doctrine always is to take that which is doctrinally correct and pure and biblical as a knowledge in us by the Holy Spirit so the Spirit will apply into our daily practical living breathing, going, saying, thinking, deciding lives. And that then makes the doctrine not just a set of systematic thought, academic information, but it causes the doctrine to become a living expression of God himself. And that's what God is after. He is not an academician. God is an extremely practical being. And so he gives us the doctrine in order for that doctrine by the Holy Spirit through our cooperation by faith to become infused in us so we become the living, breathing doctrine of God upon the earth. Doctrine. Practice. Doctrine. They have to be instructed. What was that all about? What did God mean? Why did God do it? What was his purpose? Was it a continuing thing? Was it a, was it a temporary thing? Where, what was going on? Doctrine. Who, when, how, all of those issues. Then in verse 19 of chapter 10, we begin to turn now. Therefore, let's begin to make that which God has said and done and we have understood doctrinally to begin to be a practice in us. Then it's just a major division. The first division proves biblically that the person and work of Christ is superior to the old covenant of law, regulation and animal sacrifices, all of which were insufficient in themselves, in themselves as God's means of redeeming his people from their sin and thereby from his wrath. So if the old covenant was insufficient in itself, what does that say about Christ? He is therefore sufficient within himself. And we don't want to go back to something which is insufficient. We want to remain with something which is sufficient. We don't want to go back to that which is not, is less uh, superior. We want to go back to that which is superior. Another general division. Number one, Christ is superior in his person. So remember we talked about the superiority of Christ. So we can take it from doctrine and practice or we can take it from the issue of superiority. There are two or three ways of doing this. I would suggest doing it two to three ways because I think it gives you a nice understanding of all the kinds of things that are out there in our travel map. The superiority of Christ. He is superior first in his person. Chapter 1, verses 1, all the way to 4.13. He's superior in his person. He's superior first as a son of God. Always the basis of everything. The basis of everything in our faith is that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. That is the basis of everything. Nothing else is more important because everything is contained within the divinity of Christ. The cross is nothing if Jesus is not the Son of God. There is no proof that God loves us and cares for us and we have eternal life if Jesus is not the Son of God. Everything is because of the divinity. So why does he start there? Because it's the beginning. So, the Son of God, the person of Christ, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse... Is it in your outline? 4. Then he's superior in his manhood, the Son of Man. He's superior because of the incarnation. Chapter 2, verse to 4, verse 
Okay. That's the main division. The first main division. Christ is superior in his person. Son of God, son of man. Then the next one, Christ is superior in his priestly work. His completed work, 4.14 to 10.18, is a completed work, right? It's the Old Testament covenant work. It's the cross. It's all that. And then he's superior not only in his completed work of the cross, but he's superior in his continuing work of the cross, you see, because the cross work has never ended. The work of the cross did not end when Jesus died. It still is applied to my life and to your life. So the continuing work of the cross, if I'm going to be a cross-centered person, begins in 1019 all the way to 1325. I think you see some of the other issues here. There are five warnings in this letter. And I think we have them listed at the bottom. Five warnings. So, here we have the letter to the Hebrews. Oh, by the way, one other, ref, uh, one other outline. As in the section of the doctrinal section... Chapters 1 through 7 is what we have. And he begins chapter 8, because we have such a high priest. Why that word such? <clears throat> because you look back over those last seven chapters and you see the greatness of our high priest. And you see again another division here, another moving of the argument forward. Why go back? What you going back to? Stay with it. Stay in the boat. Remain in Christ. Remain faithful. Next week, we're going to talk about chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. My personal opinion is that's the whole chapter 1. I'm not sure why the divider was put there. It wasn't in the original, but that's how that is. And so I'd rather say chapter 1 because I think the first warning obviously goes with the first chapter, and that's where it should have been, but that I didn't divide the word. So what do we have here? Say it again. Oh, yeah, the homework. Yeah, I thought you had that already. I didn't delineate, specify it. Okay. So next week, come on back. Thank you for coming in on time. Uh, bring friends with you, and may you be blessed today by the Word.